Please be seated. In the book of St. Matthew, <coughs> the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 5, and there at verse 11. Blessed are you when you suffer insults and persecution and calumnies, calumnies of every kind for my sake. Exalt and be glad, for you, you have a rich reward in heaven. In the same way, they persecuted the prophets before you. In the, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today is All Saints Day, when, according to the reference books, we call to mind not only all those saints who have gone before us into eternal life, but also the grace and mercy of God who has welcomed them. We also call to mind our own love and care for those we have known and loved and who loved us in turn, as well as those people whom we never knew but with whom we are united in the communion of all the saints. This is the traditional de definition, and while it is a very cosy and respectable way of looking at it, like many things, I don't think it always tells the whole story. Sometimes matters are not as simple as the reference books make out. We live next door to an Anglican church, All Saints, and today, their patronal festival, they have a special service to mark the occasion. There used to be an elderly incumbent, latterly grown rather set in his ways, shall we say, whose sermon on this particular day had become, according to the regular chapter goes, somewhat predictable. His point was that we were all saints, every one of us, or at least should be. One more, one most people agreed with the second part of that statement, not many accepted the first. The general feeling was that not everyone is a saint, or even a saint in waiting. The early Christians, like their pagan neighbours, kept the anniversaries of their dead, especially of those who had been martyred. Many martyrs, however, were not recorded, and so went unarmed here on earth, while places like Antioch and Rome had more martyrs than there were days in the year. Eventually, Pope Boniface IV decided, in the year 610, to build a church on the site of the Pantheon in Rome, consecrated to St. Maria and the Martyrs. The date of consecration became known as the Feast of All Martyrs and All Saints, and so the Festival of All Saints was born. Common human experience, as well as the rhythm of the liturgical cycle in the church, steadily assures us of the frailty of human living and the finality of dying. We cannot escape these facts, though it is tempting and very natural to avert our eyes from those who serve as reminders. The aging, the dying, the diseased, the infirm, and also the victim. Increasingly, with the development of near-instant transmission of news and the rise in the use of social media, we are coming to know much more of the fate of innumerable other men, women, and children. We are perhaps more aware than any other forebears of the depth and the scope 
of death from global injustice. Those of us who are not the immediate victims of such death-dealing injustice still, still suffer a real, if lesser deep, as onlookers. The world appears destabilized. People seem ever more, ever more vulnerable, while the aggressors seem to be increasingly depraved and resolute. We are left to wonder what, if anything, Christian preaching has to offer in the face of such discussion. Fortune telling, predicting the future, has always exercised a certain fascination for human beings. Crystal balls, outstretched palms, tarot cards and teacups may not exert as great an influence as formerly, but magazines and newspapers still publish horoscopes which are diligently read by many. Our readings this morning from Daniel and Revelation are from the branch of literature known as apocalyptic. This type of writing claims to reveal and make plain things which are normally hidden from human eyes. It's, it strives to open a window through which it is possible to look into, into the realities of the unseen world. It might not be fortune-telling exactly, but it is a very close relation. Our reading from Daniel gives us a vision of a celestial court, with God portrayed not as an eternal spirit, but as a memorable old man the Ancient of Days, while his throne is depicted as a chariot of fire, all well-known symbols to Daniel's contemporaries. The interesting bit, however, for me, is the comment, almost an aside, about the thousands upon thousands who were reported in being in attendance. For the early Christians, if saints were constantly in the presence of God, then they must be there. They must be accompanying him and serving him. It was something for them to look forward to. Similarly, in Revelation, here we are told of a vast throng from all races and tribes, all nations and languages, standing before a throne, who have all passed through the great ordeal, as it is said, and who now worship God day and night, safe for all eternity. A very comforting thought for those facing martyrdom. The Beatitudes, which we read in St. Matthew's Gospel, are rather different. They express the purpose of Jesus' mission, which was then seen as primarily to the poor and the needy in Israel. And they announced the dawn of a new era of salvation ministry. I think three things can be noted about the Beatitudes. First of all, they are declarations of God's goodness to the needy who depend on him. Secondly, they represent ethical demands summed up in the call to righteousness or perfection. Conforming to these demands is recognized either as fulfillment of the conditions for entry to the kingdom of God, or as having been the lifestyle of those who have entered. The third point is that the Beatitudes lay down the principles which inform and guide the life of the Christian community, all hopefully and presumably on their way to enter the kingdom of God 
and the company of the seas. But what and where is the kingdom of God? Parables abound in the New Testament which can plausibly be cited to answer this question. There is, for example, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, where the wise ones took spare oil for their lamps, while the foolish ones didn't, and so missed the party. Then there is the parable of the talents, or banks of gold, as they are usually called nowadays, where the servant who buries his gold and does nothing with it is cast into outer darkness, while the others go on to better things. These are only two, two of many references to the subject. But questions about the Kingdom of God have not remained static. Over the years they have changed and developed. For the first Christians, the return of Jesus in power and glory to enter in his kingdom, generally considered to be a physical kingdom at that point in time, it was thought to be not just imminent, but urgent. They longed for it, they prayed for it, they expected it next week. The Thessalonians gave up work to, to wait for it, as did, did the Corinthians, to the extent that Paul had to write for them, effectively shining for their impatience. But as the weeks lengthened, lengthened into months, and the months into years, and nothing happened, the prophets began to modify their message, while teachers came up with reasons for the delay. People were told that it was a lack of faith to look for signs and to try to predict the date. Perhaps God was waiting until everyone had been given the chance to be converted, or some other motive. Whatever the reason, the first apocalyptic fervor dimmed and apart from occasional flickers in times of terror or persecution, or at the turn of the first millennium, not to mention the occasional preacher crying, Repent, ye sinners, the hour of the Lord is at hand, dim it has largely remained. But it has not remained static. The basic tension between the here and now, the present aspect, and the yet to come, or future aspect of the kingdom of God, has remained and this has been reflected in almost every period in Christian history. But since the days of the early, early Christians, the advances in scientific thought and knowledge, together with huge socio-economic changes, have altered the face of society and the experience of human living beyond all recognition. All these things have to be recognized and taken into account and discussion on this matter is still continue, continuing, if not continuous, at the present day. As recently as 1980, there was a conference in Melbourne on the subject, and that was, of course, before all the upheavals in the Middle East, which will also have a bearing on the subject. Though the words, the Kingdom of God, have remained constant, their content has varied greatly over the years and has been determined as much by sociological and political considerations as by biblical ones. The Kingdom of God, I believe, is not just about being welcomed, accepted and included in the group, be they states or otherwise. It is also about being changed 
and renew, about growing in grace and in the knowledge and love of God. It is also about God's mission of change in the world. We have to be ready for it, alert and prepared. If we can channel our efforts towards working for peace and justice in a world sorely in need of them, then that will help us all towards the communion for which all the saints are intended and will also go some way fulfilling the vision of that elderly clergyman in a country church whom I knew so many years ago. As I said, he saw everyone, if not as saints, then certainly as saints in the making. Amen.